Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. early America, the percussive African banjo met with Scotch-Irish fiddle tunes in the mountain south to create a unique form of music we now call Old Time. Once widespread, and among the earliest recorded music, Old Time was eventually isolated to deep mountain hollows and far-flung communities until it was rediscovered and reinvigorated during the folk revival of the 1960s. You can hear music from each of these periods, as well as the energetic string bands of today, on High on a Mountain, Maine's only program dedicated entirely to Old Time Appalachian music. So whether you're looking for that high and lonesome sound or want to get down in the low ground, we've got you covered. That's High on a Mountain, every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on your community radio station, WERU. A raft of battle, raft of battle, have you been so long? Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from George Stevens Academy, welcoming students to discover their world. More information at georgestevensacademy.org. This is WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Belfast Flying Shoes, First Friday Dances and More, continuing their Dancing in the Park Outdoor Community Contras on July 27th at 4 p.m. at City Park in Belfast with Lisa Newcomb and Chrissy Fowler calling and music by the Don Roy Trio, BelfastFlyingShoes.org. It's 10 o'clock and it's time for Let's Talk Animals with your host, Dr. John Hunt. Good morning. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. We are live this month, so please, uh, if you have any questions or comments uh, during the hour, call in at 469-0500, 469-0500. We are live. And I always like to plug my uh, my pet sounds on Sunday morning at 7.30 in the morning. It's a short. Uh, coming up, I'm going to be um, talking about uh, summer uh, hot weather with dogs, dog days, vaccines for bats, loneliness and social isolation, how pets affect that, and uh, something about coconut oil. So those are upcoming topics on my uh, pet sounds. So please um, listen in on Sunday morning at 730, whoever's awake at that time. Uh, today, uh, I have a great guest, um, Dr. David Jefferson. He and I met at um, the uh, York County Community College. Uh, we both teach at the vet tech program, and uh, he did the large animal, and I did small s- small animal course. And last spring, we actually shared a course. Um, the first half of the course, uh, he was down in Florida, and I was teaching the students about small animals. And then he came home, and he taught the um, students about large animal diseases. And I went, and I went to Florida, so it worked out really well. That's the kind of teamwork that that uh, uh, is enjoyable. So Dr. Jefferson is, is my guest today because he's written a book called Maine Horse Doctor on the Road with Dr. J. And before I introduce him formally, I'd like to say this book is great. It's a wonderful series of small one- to two-page essays on all sorts of, of care 
about your horse for not only the um, the casual court horse owner, but I wish I had it in vet school because I didn't know anything about horses in vet school, and they didn't teach me the kind of stuff that Dr. Jefferson has uh, written in this book. So good morning, Dr. Jefferson. Good morning, John. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Uh, I'll get right to first name so I don't have to be so formal anymore because we are friends. <laughs> so, David, uh, you wrote this book how long ago? Um, two years ago. And how long did it take for you to write it? Well, actually, um, probably 15 years because it, it, it came out of a series of articles I did for a horse publication called The Horse's Mane, a play on words of Maine. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I, I wrote this monthly article for about 15 years, and then a couple of people said, put it into a book. So, And it's it's perfect. It's perfect. Thank you. Uh, your, your style is good. Uh, you take your personal experiences um, to get the home, get, you know, get the point across. <clears throat> so how did you, so you, you're writing these articles. How did you get interested in writing articles? Just someone said you should write articles? Well, I, I've always liked to write. I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a reader and I read all the time. And um, I think if you read enough stuff, you you want to sit down and write <laughs> for some reason I don't know it's kind of peculiar <laughs> isn't it I don't no that's that's a good formula and now you've been a uh, get a little background about how you could write a book like this uh, mm-hmm. you're an equine veterinarian right can you kind of tell us how I ask all my guests this every month is how you got here from there I was brought up outside of New York City and it didn't um, horses were something I saw in books and. Um, but I, I knew I liked the farm life. I liked the country life. And so when I was age 14, I started working on dairy farms outside of New York City and, you know, way outside of New York City in Vermont and New Hampshire and here and there. And um, uh, when I got out of um, high school, I decided I wanted to be a dairy farmer because of these experiences. And so I went to a two-year tech school Ag and Tech School up in Delhi, New York. And um, when I graduated from there, I thought I wanted to be a dairy farmer. And I had a little taste of it. I ran a dairy farm, managed a dairy farm. And I realized, holy cow, this is like every, you know, in the morning, early, and at night, you can't go anywhere. You're really bound to yeah. the dairy cows. So it's running a business. Yeah. And I was like, <clears throat> I didn't know what to do. So I thought, I will join the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that, that's logical stuff. Yeah, isn't it? Right. <laughs> you know, the things you think when you're 19. <laughs> and uh, and so I uh, I went three years active duty in the Marine Corps and then decided, you know, I think I want to be a veterinarian. Went to vet school thinking I was going to go into dairy cattle, but um, I was kind of drawn to the horses, and um, that's where that all started. So from your early childhood of horses, it came back to you. Mm, um, yeah. Right, but it wasn't so much horses at that. It was originally was cows, but I when I got to the vet school is when I started getting interested in horses. Oh, so when you're yeah. dealing with the on the farm, there weren't any horses no, on the farm. Not oh, really. Okay. No, I thought there were horses on no, the farm. Everything was done with tractors. Yeah. So you went to school, and uh, that's where equine medicine became a passion. Exactly. And yep. when you got, when you got out of school, where'd you go? Um, I went to a practice in rural New Hampshire, which was good because it was a general practice. So I did some, a lot of cow work, uh, horse work. The two veterinarians that were there hated horses. I mean, they really didn't like them. 
And so I had I ended up doing all the horsework, and the more I did, the more I liked it. And uh, I was there three years, and then I decided I'd like to start my own practice, and came to Maine and started a equine practice. So when you when you came to Maine, you you came to start a solo practice. You didn't you didn't Actually, join it. No, I I, uh, I I I bought someone's practice, and uh. he was dealing mostly with standard breads on the racetrack, and I worked on the racetrack for a couple of years, and I had some ethical problems with everything that goes on at the racetrack, and then I shifted over to saddle horses, so that's my... And you've been with you know, with that, yeah. doing that for... Oh, 50 years. Oh, is that all? Just 50, okay. <laughs> that was 5-0, John. <laughs> oh, oh, 5 oh, I thought... <laughs> yeah. Very, very good. Well, what I'd like to do in uh, this show, we can talk about any topic you want to bring up. But in the meantime, I wanted to kind of go over some articles that in your book that I think would be of interest to um, people in this area. Listener. Yeah. Uh, the first one is um, an article called Problems at Horse Shows. And you explain some of the problems um, that a horse owner may come across when they go to a horse show and kind of ideas of things to do um, at the horse show. Can you kind of give us a little? Well, right. Having, if you if you compete with your horses, if you show them or compete with them in some way, um, then you're out and about, and um, it's a lot different than just having a horse in the farm. A horse in the farm doesn't require that much care or knowledge, but when you go out and you start competing, um, your your horses have to be. Um, protected with vaccines more so than a farm horse and because they're apt to run into all kinds of bugs out there and um, in order to do that in order to compete you have to um, really have very specialized knowledge and even getting a horse to a show for instance you have to start months ahead of time practice loading a horse in a trailer this is not a normal thing for a horse to do so they have to be trained to that so you just, um, you just can't lead a horse into a, no, a dark cave? No, right. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly the way they think of it. I'm not getting in that cave. <laughs> Even if you go in with them? <laughs> nope, right. They just say, you go first? <laughs> yeah, it's a very rare horse that will load for the first time. So we get panic calls. People say, I'm going to a horse show and I can't load my horse. And I'm thinking, wow, this is about three months too late. <laughs> right, like they have to go now. Yeah, yeah. So a couple, any little tips uh on how to get a horse used to loading, being loaded into a trailer? You know, the easiest way to do is just have them self-educate. I tell people, put a trailer out in the middle of the field or your paddock and just feed them out of there. Uh, start with just putting feed on, the, on the, you know, the gangway up into the trailer or a little bit into the trailer. And so that and uh, they get hungry enough, they're going to go in and uh, don't, push them, and then and then put the feed further and further in each time. And then it becomes very natural for them to walk in and out. That's a place where they can eat and enjoy life. So um, that's the simplest way. And the trailer is always in the field, so it's not a new Right. It's not thing. new. It's nothing they, they just, have to snort at, right? So, right. So they're, yeah. the odors and the vision. Are they, uh, are they uh, odor-driven or visual-driven, a horse? Mm, with horses, I would say it was uh, equal parts of each. Yeah, they, you know, they're a prey animal, and so their vision is very acute. And also, they also do remind. Yeah, yeah, much more so vision. Actually, now okay. that I'm thinking about it. Yes. 
And hearing, of course. And hearing. <clears throat> now, sometimes you have to tranquilize uh, a horse to load. Is that is that a last resort? No, kind that's of thing? not a good idea um, okay. because they, then they kind of lose their sense of balance. So they get hurt themselves. Right. So okay. we try not to do that, and that's why training is so important that they just be able to walk on with a clear, sound mind. So speaking of hurting themselves, uh, you had some ideas about protecting um, them while they're in the trailer. Things can happen in the trailer. While Things you're... can happen in the trailer, so we always like to put uh, to put leg wraps on them so they don't hurt themselves. Horses are very tough animals, but they're also very delicate in many ways, and one of them is that they they tend to panic if things aren't are scary and scramble, and so they can get hurt in a trailer, and so we like to protect their legs. And here again, it's nothing you do the first time. You train them to that because it feels funny, and so you don't do that the first day you trailer them. You, you work your way into that as well. And once they're used to things like that, they you can off a bomb next to them and they're fine but it's all a matter of training and another uh, aspect of injury prevention i thought is an excellent uh thought that most people wouldn't think about is uh when you get to the horse shows be prepared to repair stables absolutely i mean what so give, give us so tell us about that. I never would have thought of that. Yeah, well, the fairgrounds are often, you know, um, the stabling sometimes is not, you know, they don't think about it should be very safe. So if you walk into the stall you're assigned, you've got to really look it over. Are there any nails protruding? Are there any loose boards? I always tell people, bring a hammer, bring some nails, um, be ready, to, and bring some spare boards, be ready to repair. So that's not uncommon? No. So you'd recommend to keep the keep the horse in the um, in the trailer and go and check yep. the place that's, out first. That's what I would recommend. Yes. And you also something about food. Don't 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 uh, horse shows provide food? Well, no, they don't. So you've got to bring your own hay and your own grain, and sometimes you even have to bring your own water because some horses will not drink strange water. Oh, really? Yeah. And so, so a lot of people will take along a 55-gallon drum and, and fill it with water. Wow. Okay. So they wouldn't have thought yeah. of it. Yeah. And you mentioned a first aid kit. Is there, what would you put in a first aid kit for? Oh, well, we have a first aid kit that we put together for people. It's pretty standard stuff, like um, if a horse gets its leg hurt, if a horse is going to get colicky, we have, uh, that uh, has belly pain, we put medicine in for that eye ointments, just a whole bunch of stuff um, that um, is a good thing to always carry with you. One of the, uh, some other things you mentioned in this article is uh, getting exposed to viruses and bacteria that they normally mm, don't. Right. Uh, so, so what kind of things do you recommend to minimize that? So a horse that? on a farm might never have a flu shot, but horses that are going to be traveling and showing, absolutely, it's a really a necessity. It's not one of what we call the core vaccines, which all horses should have. But if a horse is going to be traveling, they need a strangles vaccination. They need an influenza vaccination. And uh, so they need the extra vaccines because if you come off a farm and you've never been exposed, um, they will get sick. And are there things besides vaccines to help the horse owner uh, keep their horse healthy? 
Well, certainly um, every horse is every horse should be have its teeth checked twice a year, um, and uh, and and worming um, horses are very subject to worms, um, causing intestinal damage and colic. So uh, worm and worming should be done based on um, the egg count in the manure. So we have people check their manure at least once a year. And then we worm accordingly. And again, just one last thing about the horse show is you don't recommend uh, hanging out with other horses? No, I wouldn't do it. Right, right. Okay. They should be separated, all separated. So yep. even though people may think you're not sociable, that's... Uh, <laughs> Right, we try, Who cares? To, we try to tell them, you know, no nose-to-nose contact. Yeah, good idea. Well, this is summertime, and you had a uh, an, another great little article called Invasion, the Biting Stable Flies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, <laughs> the expression, the tone of your voice matches the tone of your article. So tell us about stable flies. Stable Fascinating. flies are, um, the official name is Stamoxis calcitrans which means um, in Latin, sharp mouth, is that's the stomoxis, and the calcitrans is kicking. And horses, these are, these are flies. They're, they look like house flies, except they're about half the size of a house fly. And they love horses and cattle. And they, uh, they have very sharp, biting mouth parts. And so they, they, they bite their legs, and they draw blood. Horses hate them. They're very painful. And they prefer horses and cattle. If you're around and you've got a horse or a cow around, um, then they won't bother you. But if there's no horses or cattle around and, and you're there, they will bite your legs. So, and uh, they, they draw the blood, and, and the females need these blood meals to lay eggs. The legs, eggs are laid on rotting vegetation that you might have around your place. And um, they, they, they hatch they, they form little pupa and then cocoons, and then they hatch out, and they, um, and then that's the adult fly that comes to bite the horses. How quick is that life cycle from? Oh, that's a good question. You know. Do they know? Um, yes, they do know. And my, I, as I remember, it's about two to three months. Okay. Yeah, so in a couple of months, you can have an adult coming on. Yep. So at the springtime... You see the flies, and about now you're going to see yeah, some. Yeah, you will see them, right. And they're so severe in some places. I remember um, years ago they closed down Damascata Lake State Park because they had an they had a, a tide that had come in, left the rotting seaweed on the beach, and it wasn't cleaned up, and those flies came and laid their eggs there, and they, they hatched over the course of the summer, and it drove people crazy. So they had to shut the beach down until they cleaned up all the rotting vegetation. Sounds like they travel quite a bit. And they do. They do. And so, um, yeah, they're, they're really, and the horses just hate them. And the other thing is that they're a real health hazard because anything that bites a horse and draws blood is apt to carry diseases. Which is the disease that they carry that we know about. Yes, equine infectious anemia ah, okay. or swamp fever. That's very, very serious. So, um yeah, they're kind of a pain. So you got this barn, and you got your horse, and the flies are biting. So what do you recommend to help control these guys? I know you're not going to get rid of them, right? 
Um, actually, Arcadia. yeah, you're right. You're not going to get rid of them. Um, the only way to get rid of them is there are um, fly traps, especially meant for them, which are unusual fly traps. They're very shiny and they have sticky material on, and even even uh, fly strips work. Um, but uh, there's also you if you have a manure pile and then you can spread what they call fly predators, which are little teeny tiny wasps that hatch in your manure or your rotting vegetation, and they attack the eggs of the stable flies. So the stable flies never get a chance to hatch out. And a lot of people in Maine um, get these every year. They're sent to you from a laboratory and um, where they grow them, and, um, and that, that's your best prevention. But also, um, yeah, that's the best prevention. So bug zappers don't work. Bug zappers aren't good because they also kill um, good stuff. Good stuff. Good insects. They'll kill. You know, they'll grab uh, dragonflies and uh, even hummingbirds. So that's not good. No. Ah, yuck. Well, that's um, so. That's people are fighting those right now. Exactly. Um, you can't yeah. put anything on the horse. You know, like a. Yes, you can, and they work. So, you know, um, they have these residual ones that are supposed to work for a week. In point of fact, most insecticides on horses will last maybe a couple of days. So they haven't figured out an internal one like for fleas and ticks and dogs? No. That's a great question. Well, it'd be something you should develop. You've been doing it for 50 years. You, you should, got me thinking. Yeah. Get a patent and you wouldn't have to be, you could retire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're going to retire. Uh, this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals, Aardvarks and Zebras. Uh, we are live today with Dr. Uh, Jefferson um, talking about horses, 469-0500, 469-0500. We're just kind of going over certain topics in his wonderful book. Um, this is something that um, I think not only horse owners but uh, pet owners can Get a little bit of knowledge. It's, it's your essay on ADR. Mm. You tell us what ADR and BAR and all that stuff means and how you help uh, your clients. Well, ADR is a term we use. It means ain't doing right. And if you've got a horse that's not really sick or not really, you know, you just think something's wrong here. We call that ADR. And I know you see that with dogs and cats. And if you have... And when we have owners that are very observant and say, you know, I just feel that something's wrong here. And I always take, I didn't used to take those so seriously when I first started practicing. But now I, I've learned, you, when people say that, you really listen because there is something going on. Um, we uh, encourage people to, and we try to teach our clients um, how to do a temperature, a pulse, and a respiration. So take a temperature of a horse, how to take a pulse, count the respirations, and those are important when you're evaluating a horse's health. So I think, you know, we try to encourage everybody to have a thermometer. And we teach them how to um, take these um, health signs on horses. And you mentioned BAR. That just means if a horse is BAR, he's bright, alert, and responsive. That's the BAR. And when they're bright, alert, and responsive, they're usually fine, and we don't stress over them too much. But when, when things are a little off, 
we lose the brightness, we lose the alertness, and we use, we lose the responsiveness. And that's when owners, good owners that really are in tune with their animals, um, pick up on those the, right away. Do you also uh, you mentioned an article about uh, gut sounds? Mm. Is that something yes, that's you, important too? Yes, do you teach exactly. any client the gut sounds thing, oh, yes, or we try to? You yes. try to, okay, yeah, absolutely. And. Uh, so when you when they call you up and they say my horse is ADR, and you it's a client of yours, you're going to automatically say, okay, what's the temp, pulse, respiration, and gut sounds? Exactly right. And most of the time, once they get that, they probably never call you if if there's no fever and pulse is okay. And that's right. Okay, so that yeah. saves you a lot of nuisance calls. Yes, it does. And then you know we we try, and I'm sure you do this. We 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 you know try to train our clients um, that. If you call, you be ready with that stuff because if you don't have those parameters ready to tell us about, then we're going to send you back out to the barn to get them before we come out. We're happy to go out, but we don't want to go out unnecessarily. A little different small animal. Usually they just drive over the clinic and oh, really? <laughs> carry their dog oh. in. Say, oh, like that, okay. A dog is sick. Yeah. <laughs> and that's We have the, the privilege or the uh, advantage of them bringing the animal in. Um, but with a horse, it's not so easy right. to do. It's not. So is there anything in particular you have to worry about? This sounds really silly, but could be important. Is, you know, there's a right way and wrong way of taking a temperature and, and safety, too, for you and the horse. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, can you just kind of tell? I know this sounds simplistic, but it may be something, some hints and things you do's and don'ts for taking a temperature. Yeah, well, there's, there's a dangerous... Um Aspect of horses, of course, and 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 so you know we we're always conscious of that. And we take a horse's temperature. We always approach them from the left side and not from the rear. So we approach from the left shoulder because that's what they're used to. And we have somebody holding them. We do not in a, in our practice when we examine a horse, we always have someone holding the horse instead of putting the horse on cross ties. And then if I was approaching the horse, I approach from the left horse. I let them know I was there. I talked to them. And as I work my way to the back, I have always have one hand on the horse. And that way, if they're going to kick you, they'll let you know. And then I approach from the left side. I pick up their tail with my left hand, and I insert the, the thermometer into their anus. Um, and it's, it's, we put grease on the end of it. Or if we, don't, if we forgot the grease, we spit on it. And then we just insert it. Um, into the rectum, and we just wait a minute and then pull it out. And now with these uh, newer digital thermometers, see, it's a matter of about 10 seconds, and we can get their temperature. Most horses are used to it because they've, they've had it done to them a lot. And it's another good thing to train a horse to. So what happens if the horse shifts its hips, like it's shifting weight, and you have that therm- you're holding a thermometer? Could you possibly have a thermometer break off? Because you don't move with the... I've never had one break off, but I have, um, when we used to use the glass thermometers, you know, it was just a glass tube, I've had them get lost in a horse. You know, I wasn't paying attention. Maybe I'd let go of the thermometer and they can suck it inside. Wonderful. And we don't don't worry about that. I just say, (laughs) you know, this is a saying from the Bible. This too will pass. (laughs) So they're about... Four inches long, but we don't ever worry about it. And I say, I just go get another thermometer in the truck, and we carry on. I say, please, if you happen to see the thermometer come out in the next day or two, 
grab it for me. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're expensive. I need. <laughs> I once had a – I was taking temperature of a cat and he he got real excited and shifted his whole body and I I didn't go with him and the thermometer broke in half. Oh, really? Yeah, and this is on Saturday morning calls. And so I was holding – I'm looking at half the thermometer in my hand. And this, this little 14-year-old girl or 16-year-old girl was the one that brought it in. She was kind of looking at me like, okay, what are you going to do now? Yeah. <laughs> I said, I, I'm just going to take your cat – Put him in the back of the in our hospital for the morning, and you come back at noon. And uh, I, I gave an enema, and it came out. But for that split second, I was my heart was like in my throat. Oh yeah, yes. So I stuff, get it. I, I bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never broken one. Of course, the large animal thermometers are a lot more rugged than the small animal ones. You know, yeah, they're very heavy glass, so never had one. I've had them break certainly, but never within a horse. That would have been scary. Now, in, in school, we had them attached to a string and a like a little clip, so you'd clip them onto the tail. So if you let go, it wouldn't fall into the hay and never find it. Is that something that you have to worry about? Or um, I usually I don't do that because the strings just have a tendency to get too nasty. So I just um, you know I put the thermometer in and I just keep my finger on it. Well, you're better. I, I, I'm lightly holding it so they don't suck it in except for that one time but, <laughs> but um you know and and so and then when I, it comes out after i read it i really you know uh rinse it well with alcohol so um i don't use the string in the clip yeah well good good advice one thing that always um was a mystery to me was uh the horse horse owners and and equine doctors you have your own language and you have all sorts of terms that I've never heard of, and they were always mysterious to me, and it made my my vet school experience hell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was, that would be stressful. Right. It was very stressful. I didn't know what what, what was what, right, right. and when you find out what it is, oh, okay. It's that. <laughs> and one of these is gravel. Yeah. So you say, oh, you horse, my horse got gravel, and I'm thinking gravel, gravel, okay. <laughs> That's on the driveway, and you know, I, I couldn't figure it out. So, um, tell us, tell us, all of our listeners, what gravel is, what it does, how you treat it, how you diagnose it, that sort of thing. Sure. So the term gravel refers to a foot infection, and the reason it's called gravel is because a horse, a horse's foot, um, we have the sole of the foot, just like our sole, and when the sole meets the wall or the outside of the horse's foot. There's a little seam there, just like, kind of like when a wall and a floor come together, there's a natural seam. And so a teeny tiny rock is very common for rocks to get into that little uh, seam. And then um, because there's a rock, there's an entrance to the body, so bacteria can follow that. And then the bacteria work their way up to the sensitive part of the foot, and the horses are extremely lame. This is the most common horse reason a horse goes lame. Oh, really? Absolutely. And um, so that becomes an issue, and we have the farrier come, or the, or the sometimes the veterinarian will just pair out the foot and see if he can release the abscess, because you have this relatively rigid wall that holds the foot together, and then you've got an infection in there, and it's like it has no room to expand, and so it causes tremendous pain to a 
They sometimes will just stand there with the foot and won't put the foot on the ground. So just touch their toe. And um, and so that's always the first thing we look for. So how do you how you look for gravel? I mean, what what signs well, we do you? We use a knife, and we, we we can see where the entrance was, and we kind of pare it away and release any pus. Um, sometimes you can't because it gets too deep, and so we have the owner soak the horse's leg a couple of times a day, or the horse's foot a couple of times a day with Epsom salt to try to bring it up to a head at the uh, at the top of the foot where the hairline is. Oh, so, so it oozes out. And it'll break out, out up okay. there. Just like a cat abscess kind of. I don't know anything about cat abscess. <laughs> oh, good. You mean, I, I know something you don't. That's, oh, that's great. Okay. I'll chalk that up for me today because <laughs> I don't know anything about horses. And then sometimes you it won't release and you just have to wait it out, sometimes for a couple of weeks. And then it just slowly goes away. It doesn't ever come to a head. Now, so. horses with horseshoes? Does that prevent gravel? It does. It prevents oh, okay. most of gravel, yes. So do you recommend shoeing horses? No, not necessarily. If they can do without shoes, that's wonderful. Okay, because why? Um, it's pretty natural. The foot can expand a little more, has more opportunity to expand. And unless they're necessary, like if you're going to be riding on a road or racing, where it's a tremendous amount of impact, um, there's really there's not a need. Now, any horse that's used a great deal will probably have shoes, and it varies with the breed. For instance, thoroughbreds have very sensitive feet, and they almost always have to be shod. Other horses' feet are tougher, like standardbreds have very tough feet, and sometimes they don't need to be shod, even though they're raced, <clears throat> although most are. So it's a very individual judgment call. So horses that don't have Shoes that they, they still need their nails clipped, so to speak. Yes, they do. They should be every six to eight weeks. They have their uh, feet trimmed. Yeah, and that that should be done by farrier or can that's they, done by a farrier. So owners can't do that or shouldn't do it. Mm, sometimes they can. Most owners prefer to have a farrier, and I would recommend it. Okay, uh, I'd like to have a farrier on my show someday. So. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, I think that'd be really fun. Now, tell me about part of your diagnosis. Sometimes it's hard, right, um, uh, for gravel. So what's this about digital pulse? What's that all about? Well, there's some arteries that go to the foot, and we compare the pulse going to the foot on the affected leg, and then we compare it with the one on the other side. And if and if the, if it's a if it's a gravel, the pulse will be not quicker because speed of the pulse is determined by the heart, but it'll be much stronger. Sometimes the pulse will be literally 10 times as strong as it is on the other unaffected leg. So I guess I don't understand why it's stronger, because it's obstructed from the... Mm, Well, you have an infection in the foot. Oh, and the body's trying to feed it? and the body is trying to, right. So when people hear infection, abscesses, uh, I hear this with small animals. Give them antibiotics, but that isn't something... Oh, oh, we try not to do that. Okay, why is that? Um, because we'd rather have it come to a head and get it over with. If you put them on antibiotics, a horse on antibiotics, it'll help a little bit, and we even try to stay away from um, anti-inflammatories because we need them to go through this stage where it comes to a head and breaks open, either in the bottom or up at the top. And putting on an antibiotics helps a little bit, but um, as soon as you take them off, it's still there. 
so so it doesn't cure it. Yeah, right. Okay. So if we can avoid it, we avoid it. And painkillers you don't like because? Um, here again, we want we want this abscess to come to a head and get released. And if we put on a painkiller, it'll make the pain less. And it sounds cruel, but it'll make the pain somewhat less, and that's a good thing, but we really want them to get over it. So if we can avoid any inflammatories, we do. As part of that concept that if they feel a little pain, they'll stay off the foot a little bit instead of using it when they shouldn't? Well, if they're feeling the pain, they won't use it. Right, and that, that's yeah. not a bad thing. Right, not a bad thing for okay. a little while. And this is a this is something that's uh, with all pets too, as well as you know, horses and dogs and cats. Sometimes, this, as you know, the big trend is is control pain in, mm-hmm. in human medicine. Right. And I see that, and correct me if I'm wrong, with equine medicine, that's becoming a big thing with, it is. with dogs and cats too. Yes, it is. And I used to tell my clients – you know, a little pain is good. It's it's nature's way of saying, okay, slow down. That's right. And be quiet. And uh, I think people understand that once it's explained to them. Yes, I agree. We're talking with Dr. David Jefferson, who wrote a book, Main Horse Doctor, On the Road with Dr. J. Uh, he uh, wrote this book last year. It took him a decade and a half, but... Uh, he he made it. I'm just I'm just teasing you. <laughs> there are a series of articles he is uh, in, a, in a magazine that he made into a book, and it's it's a wonderful book. And we're just talking about the different um, you know, aspects of of caring for your horse. This is uh, Let's Talk Animals, Aardvarks and Zebras. Doctor John Hunt, your host. Uh, if you have any questions about horses, anything, uh, I'm sure uh, David would be more than happy to. Answer. It's 469-0500-469-0500. Another topic I'd like to go over is um, Lyme disease. Mm. Very topical right now mm. because of so many people and dogs and, and the ticks and this and that. So um, you wrote your article is very, very good about horse Lyme disease. I think people really should be... Um, cognizant of this, so please talk to, talk to us about Lyme yeah, disease in and, horses. Um, in horses, it's funny, uh, the ticks, uh, of course, horses are out a good part of the day, and so they're very apt to pick up ticks. Um, we look for them under the tail, we look for them under the jaw, and those are the two most common places, although wow. they can implant anywhere. And it is not unusual in an, in an area that has a lot of ticks for people every night they should be checking for ticks every night when the horses come in. It's not unusual to pull 10 to 12 ticks off. Of course, some of them are dog ticks, and, and we don't worry about them, but the little, you know, the tiny Ixodes ticks yeah. um, that carry Lyme disease, uh, you know, we really, if if they can get them off within, you know, because it takes 24 hours for them to be on to uh, transmit the disease. So that's the that's the most important thing. Insecticides repel them somewhat, but nobody depends on that. So it's a da- daily check then? It's a daily check. And what's interesting about Lyme is that um, in traveling around, I found there are some areas that are, we have a lot of Lyme, and the best example is Cape Elizabeth. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, have a very large deer population, and they have hunting restrictions in Cape Elizabeth. And I, and I think it's still in the fact that I can only hunt with bow and arrow. So, um, and a very limited season, I believe. So there are a lot of deer in Cape Elizabeth. 
and um, they're one of the intermediate hosts. So um, if a horse is sick in Cape Elizabeth, that's always number one on our list. Does the horse have Lyme? And you think they're on? You find them under the jaw and the under the tail. Under head. the tail. Is that do you think because that's the highest part of the horse? You know, that it's a, it's a area that's um, yeah that might have something to do with it. I think more it's it's a kind of a hidden area. The horses can't get to it under the tail, oh, and they can't okay. really do much about it under their jaw. And well, actually, they can't. Horse can't pick them off anyway, so that's sort of silly. But you know, ticks like warm, moist places like in us. Yeah. You know, they tend to go to the armpit. They tend to go to the crotch. Right. So. Um, and tend to go up. That's yeah, the other thing think, about yeah, there. Yeah, you're right. They do tend to go up, don't they? Yeah, yeah that's so kind of what. That's why uh, dog yeah. collars, flea co- tick collars work because when oh, they I didn't know that. got on a dog's leg, they yeah. always went up, across oh. the uh, neck to get to the head. Interesting. And that's how they got exposed yeah. to, the, yeah. to the poison. So that's what I was wondering. It's fascinating under the jaw and tail head. I never would have thought of that. So, um, so what are the symptoms? Is well, in horses, it's really interesting, and I don't think this is true of other species. In horses, um, they get extremely skin sensitive. So a horse that loves to be uh, groomed will just back away from you, like, don't touch me, that hurts. Everything hurts. Really? So th- when we have a skin sensitivity and somebody will say, this horse is so grumpy, I can't even touch him anymore. First thing we think of, Lyme. So the, would they call you f- with those symptoms? My my my, my use, paraphrasing your, my horse is grumpy. I can't touch him. Is that mm-hmm. why they call? Or is mm-hmm. there... well, they're most most horse people now are pretty savvy about Lyme because our incidence is very high. I think the last report I saw that Maine is in cases per thousand in people. Um, we have the highest incidence now in the nation. Used to be Connecticut, then it was New Hampshire. Now it's I think it's Maine. Um, per capita. Per ca- that, that's what I'm trying to say, yes, per capita. And um, so it, it, it's, uh, there is never a time in our practice where we're not treating a horse for Lyme. Any other symptoms besides skin that's, sensitivity? That's the big one in horses. Um, there's a closely related disease because it's also carried by ticks, which is anaplasmosis, and I know you see this in dogs. A lot. And in horses, the big symptom of that is They'll run a fever, which they don't seem to do in Lyme, or we're not catching it. And the fever, you can't you can't break the fever. You try, you give anti-inflammatories, and the fever comes back, and it's high, 105, 106. And that's the first thing we think of as anaplasmosis. Just offhand, do you use banamine to cut fevers? Um, we do. Okay. Yes, and we use the um, doxycycline or minocycline for antibiotics, and it usually works very well because we catch them quite early. And we treat for three weeks. How long do you treat for horses? Yeah, we treat for a month. A month? Yeah. Okay. Uh, actually, um, in the last couple of years, we've been treating for eight weeks. Yeah, because uh, you mentioned yeah. six weeks in your yeah, book. Six to eight weeks. Yeah, we're, we're, we keep increasing it. I know. We, <laughs> wanna, we want them to get over it. Well, know, because we don't know. Yeah, yeah. We just don't know. Uh, tricky organism. Now, was there any evidence of the Lyme critter in the horse's urine? Because I remember reading a long time ago, it was in cattle urine. Is that, am I am I wrong here? It, I'm not aware of that. Okay, then we'll just forget. Yeah, you got me on that. One. We'll forget that and move on. <laughs> <laughs> That's our privilege. We can do that. Um, so, do you have a Lyme test um, like we, we do? Well, for dogs, uh, yeah, we like to send ours to Cornell because we like to see the numbers of 
of um, you know what's the actual titer. Mm-hmm. And uh, but there is a quick test that we use. We just use the dog test that you know when people bring their dog in to see you, they'll use the snap test. We use that on horses as well. Is it the snap test for dogs, or is there a it's snap the test snap for horses? Test for dogs. Really, has yeah. the same yeah. because they're looking at the the bug, not the antibodies right. of the horse or the. Okay, so yep. that's very good. Well, that's cool. So you yep. can just now does that work for the anaplasma or lichia? The it other does. Two? It does. That's very good. Excellent. So you just do it right at the. Uh, yes, that's yes, a yes, no, right? It depends on the situation. Yes, no, and depends on the situation. But um, we give people the option. We can we can start treating right away because all the symptoms are very suggestive of Lyme or anaplasmosis. So, or they can go the more expensive route and have a test sent to Cornell, in which you see actual numbers. And some people are very interested in that. I want to get a baseline, so we'll do it that way. Do you? also see uh, horses, you treat them, they seem to have gotten over it, and they get it again? They can, yes. So it's, it's, it's the antibodies from the previous um, infection aren't good enough? I, so. I think um, not always, right, because we've had horses that have had it a couple of times, you know. It seems after a while that the antibody level starts to drop, and, and um, you know, some horses are just, Ticks love them. Uh, it's, you found some yeah. just like people. <laughs> yeah, it's like people. When Bonnie and I go outside for a walk, she stays close to me because all the bugs go to me. <laughs> so you're like one of those fly strips in yeah, the, in the barn. <laughs> I didn't know you were that sticky. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, of sticky things, I wanted to also talk about porcupine quills. Now, first of all, porcupine quills sent my kids through college. Just wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> all the emergency calls I had with dogs yeah. with porcupine quills, um, they had three three kids, three college degrees. Now, horses have the same problem, but they do it a little bit differently than dogs. Dogs go after them. Yeah. They're predators. They, yeah. they chomp on them. They roll in them. Right. That's another thing. They're and, they, and they go back again, don't they, John? Uh, they keep going back again. Yeah. And, and horses never go back again. Be, you know, so what does that, that say? horses smarter? I don't know. But <laughs> as far as porcupines go, they learn. So, I've never had a horse get porcupines twice, ever. Really? No. Ever. Well, and I had a dog that was like, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it was a regular. Uh, and nowadays, uh, the way medicine is with emergency medicine, these me- these emergency clinics, it costs a bundle. I've heard that. It's just in my day, you come into my clinic, yep. you know, fifty bucks, you're you're done, you go home. It's not like that anymore. So, what kind of why do why do horses get quills, and where do they get them, and what do you do with them? The most. It's only the curious horses that will get quills. Most horses, if they see something strange in the pasture, will think, oh, I'm a little shy of that. And so they'll stay away. Some horses are curious, and what they do almost always is they will reach down with their nose. Big mistake with a porcupine. (laughs) And so the porcupine will, you know, get them with a quill. And they'll be stuck all over the muscle, sometimes in the mouth like a dog. And... um, yeah, and the only other place you see them is on the legs because every once in a while a horse, you'll have a horse that sees something strange and will go to kick it with a back leg, and they'll get him in the back leg. Do the owners take care of that most of the time so you don't get very many calls? Um, I, you know, when they call with it, I say, okay, here's the deal. Get yourself some needle-nose pliers 
And if there's just less than a dozen, you can probably do this yourself. And I say just grab the, uh, the quill as close to the skin as you can and, and, and squeeze tight and hold on. And, I, and they say, well, how hard do I pull? And my answer is you don't have to pull because when you clamp on, the horses will jerk back. Yeah, they'll pull, they pull it. They'll do the pulling. <laughs> yeah. And don't cut them. No, that, no. That, and I tell you, I cut, people come in with their dogs. They I cut know, all the quills, the little nubbins. It drove me crazy. Yeah, because they, well, and it deflates is, them. It doesn't deflate them. Right. Yeah. Right. And there is air in those shafts, but that's not what is the sticking power. It's those little barbs on them. It's the little barbs. Yeah. But that's a myth that will never die, John. I know. I guess not. I guess no. not. Because we, you know, we try. We try, David. We try. We'll keep trying, and your book helps. Your book helps. Which we're talking with Dr. David Jefferson, who wrote a book, Main Horse Doctor, On the Road with Dr. J, full of uh, one- to two-page little essays about all sorts of, of uh, care of horses. It's, it's outstanding. It's an outstanding book. Even if you're not a horse person, uh, if you're just interested in animals, it's a, it's a great book to read. And we're getting back to the language, this foreign language of horses. And here's another disease that just I, once I read about what it was, I understood it. But when I first saw it, scratches or grease heel, mud fever. Come on, David. You guys got to you guys got to start talking English here. I know, I know. <laughs> you just want to be special. That's what it, that's what it is. <laughs> so what's scratches? Because that's pretty serious stuff. It is, and it's seen most often in um, you know the Budweiser horses. They're, yes, they're, the breed is Clydesdale. And they're very fancy horses. Those are um, carriage horses that are big. So you wouldn't use a Clydesdale to pull logs out of the woods, but you would. They're they're, they're meant to pull, you know, big heavy uh, wagons. And they're very fancy. And they have that those white hairs below the knees and below the hocks behind. And th- those hairs are very long and they're very fancy, and when they trot along, all those hairs, they call them feathers, you know, like another horse term is, they call them feathers, yes. and they just bounce, and it's very pretty, as you know. So it's a great place for bacteria to grow. Uh, to um, If they're not kept scrupulously clean, like the Budweiser, I've watched these guys, these Teamsters, when they were down at Cumberland Racetrack, and I went behind the scenes, and I said, how do you prevent scratches? And they, after they compete with those horses, let's say they are out in the mud, they wash the legs very thoroughly, and then they use a hairdryer to to dry every horse's legs. So it's a place where um, it can get dirty under there next to the skin, and then if they get any kind of a little scratch, which is where the term comes from, so scratches, that's an entrance for a bacteria, and because it's warm and it's moist under that hair, great place for bacteria to grow. And the bacteria grow, and they get under the skin, and and it just makes a miserable infection because the horses just hate it, and it's very painful. So it's it's under the skin, or is it superficial, like no, a hot it, spot it, in it a actually, dog? It, it's, it, it makes an entrance right under the skin. Really? So it, and you, you see the expression on the skin because they... They break out. It's just a mess. And all those terms like grease heel and grapes, and there's other terms for it, um, are because of the appearance, because it just becomes a greasy mess, and it's really hard to treat. And one of your initial treatments, uh, when I saw this, I thought, oh, my gosh, this brought back old memories. When I bought the 
Bucksport Vet Hospital, you know, 35 years ago, um, the guy I bought it from, he, he had done some mixed animal stuff. So he left a lot of the drugs in, on, on the shelf, and one of them was ichthymol. Oh, yeah. And ichthymol, I didn't have any idea what that was. So I've, been, I've been practicing small animal medicine in Connecticut, of yeah. all places. So I didn't get that. So I opened the thing, and it looked like it came from a tar pit. Yeah. You know, it's just this, and it smelled great. Mm-hmm. And I started using it as an astringent, and, and I use it a lot in small animal. But I saw you, you, you I saw that you use it. And I thought, oh man, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> Brings yeah. back old memories. So, what does ichthymol do? For well, the uh, scratches, um, it's a coal tar derivative. That's where it comes from, and um, it it's a great drying agent. And so we just uh, smear it on the leg, just as thick as frosting on a chocolate cake. And then we wrap the leg with Saran wrap, and then um, a regular cotton leg cotton and a leg wrap, and it kind of um, uh, it kind of makes them sweat in there, and it just it's a great healer. And it pulls all that gunk out of there, and when that's out, it makes it much easier for to clean it up. So that's kind of the initial treatment that I have used for fifty years. Works wonderful. Do you shave? Do you shave the hair first, though? Well, it depends. You know, on a, a Clydesdale, people would not be happy with that. Oh but yeah, I can if imagine. it's a horse that's not like it's a woods horse, that yeah, we would shave them. So it's like an astringent. It brings things out. Mm-hmm. You take the bandage off. You clean it up. Is there any other treatment after that? So when you take it off and you just scrape off the extra ichthymol and then, you know, uh, probably a betadine scrub or um, something like that. And, and then we keep it very dry. And that's the biggest part of the treatment. If they're really bad, we'll put them on antibiotics. That's not, not usually necessary. That's good. That's good to hear that. that. Second time we've talked about not using antibiotics, mm. just uh, just caring for the wound and let the body heal and mm-hmm. and doing what it helping the body mm-hmm. heal. Oh God, we're running out of time. Can't believe it, David. Um, but uh, this is fun. The, I, this, it's great. I, I always we always have a great time at school chit chatting. So yes, we uh, do. It's, so I got some more stuff. Okay. Um, I want as soon as uh, my as soon as John my. Uh, my engineer says I can run out of time. I'll, I'll cut you short. Um, so I don't think I'm rude or anything. Okay. Uh, wheeze, rattle, roar. Noises that, that horses make. That, that's something to be kind of disconcerting if you don't know what you're listening to. Right. Give me some ideas of all the, the noises from well, head to toe, well, so to, a lot of, head to are, tail. There are a lot of head noises. And, you know, you look at a horse's head, and it's pretty big. And a lot of that is just air. So they have huge sinuses of that big bony head and from the eyes all the way down to the nose it's mostly sinuses and that's to warm the air and to um, because horses really are very dependent on air they're very athletic animals and they work hard and and they need a great supply of good warm air and it's also a, a, a place that they can get in trouble so and, and any noise that the head makes is exaggerated because of this echo chamber they have. So one of the things that can happen is they can, um, if they get a sinusitis, you'll get you'll get some gurgling when they breathe, uh, some rasping. Um, if they have a paralyzed um, throat latch, or you know, it's like a vocal fold that we have, vocal cords. One of them can become paralyzed, and then when the air goes through that. You get a tone like you're blowing on a Coke bottle, mm-hmm. you know, 
and um, and that's an inspiratory noise. If they're having a lung problem uh, that's called heaves, you'll get an expiratory noise. And um, some horses get kind of used to noises they make, and they'll make noises on their own. So some of them will um, uh, can move their tongue so that the tongue flaps in the breeze, and you'll hear a funny noise. And they get kind of addicted to this. <laughs> so it's like it's like a twelve-year-old making noises like it, under their arm, exactly. so to speak. Exactly. Oh, that's such a good analogy. <laughs> and, they, and they're looking like oh, I didn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And and um, how would you know about that, John? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. I take the fifth. I the. The paralyzed larynx is, is something that dogs get too, the laryngeal paralysis. I it sounds know, like a train. I must have learned that in school, but I certainly forgot about <laughs> it. And how about the other end, passing gas? The other end, when they, they can, horses are herbivores, so all of their food is, you know, grass or hay. And um, so they produce a lot of gas, which is totally normal, except some horses are unbelievably gassy. And, um, you know that you know the gas X, the human yes, drug. Yes, yeah. Well, that works on horses. Yeah. Don't you have to give them a lot? You do. You have to give them ten pills. Oh my God, that's like a whole bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm never that bad. So, jeez. <laughs> oh, well, one so one, la- one last question. We have a minute. Yep. Is your lifestyle as equine vet? Maybe there's some listeners out there. They're young. They're thinking about being a horse doctor. What's what's your lifestyle been for? Well, you know, most of the years it's pretty acceptable. In the spring, like from February until July, it's you know you're you're working hard. In the winter, it's pretty slow. And you know, I keep looking to see if my phone is disconnected in January. <laughs> but in the spring, you know, you're very very busy, and that's when all the horse activity is, and that's when you give the shots, and that's when the babies are born, and that's when they get in trouble. So, uh, you know, you, you you put in many, many 12-hour days. So it's it's hard work but rewarding. I think it's very rewarding. It, it seem, I, seems I like it. I think it was, for me, it was like the perfect profession to pick. Yeah. Well, you were a perfect guest, uh, Dr. David Jefferson, the author of Maine Horse Doctor, On the Road with Dr. J. It's uh, you go to a bookstore, you can order it. It's really a, a fine book. David, I'm looking forward to chit-chatting with you at school soon. That's right, coming up. Yeah, so thank you very much. Oh, it was fun, John. Thank you. Thank you again. Maybe I'll have you on again. That'd be great. Okay. Bye-bye. So this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. And remember, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug. Support for WERU comes from Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information, publishing three weekly newspapers, the Weekly Packet, Island Advantages, and the Castine Patriot, as well as the Bay Community Register, the Summer Seasonal Guide, and more. Also on the web at penobscotbaypress.com. Summer is such a great time to catch up on reading, and what better topic to dive into than Maine? 
This is Natalie Springle from the University of Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations. On our next program, we'll talk with three Maine authors, including Barbara Kent Lawrence, whose novels explore the relationship between summer and year-round island communities, a topic that grew out of research about the influence of culture on aspirations on Mount Desert Island. Catherine Schmidt, who writes 